0: This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co hosts, Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the host will also be dialoguing with writers about books they love and why these books matter for the life of the believer. I am not a pastor. And I'm so delighted to get to ask this question as someone who is not a pastor, (laughs) but I want to ask the question, I think that relates to church. You know, when you imagine your church being changed and transformed and people loving Jesus more and loving each other more, and you want to increase that level of charity in your congregation, is there a book that if you could buy every member of your church, this book, what would it be?
1: Claude, how about you first, buddy?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Um, this is a painful question to me because it feels like there's really. It's an impossible question, like the you know, uh, the one book you would want um, everyone in your church to read. This is impossible because no, just it's going to be easy
1: to please everybody, man. I mean, yeah, I, exactly. It,
2: <laughs> it's also really hard it's it's hard because it's also hard hard to not think like pragmatically like uh just sort of what would be you know what would people be able to read um I'm also like having pastored in different places i'm currently in a context where people are really well read like you know it, uh, and you know i could say uh augustine's confessions and like a fair amount of people and like i mean i would probably say maybe approaching half have probably have probably read some portions of that so so it's tricky um so what will I say for the sake of this uh this painful torturous but interesting question. Um I guess I would want to think about this more. I didn't get enough lead time. These questions were not sent in advance. So uh, <laughs> I, I okay, right now at this moment at this time, I'm going to say um uh Henry Nowens, the par, uh the parable of the the return of the prodigal son. Um I'm going to mention that because I w- the rationale for me behind this answer would be something that people would are going to read that's going to bring them to scripture. Um and that's going to have an impact on how they live in light of the truth um of the gospel of Jesus. And I th- when I think about books outside of the Bible that have had a profound impact on me and on the sort of um Bringing Home the Gospel to My Heart in a, in a Really Rich Way, that book is really high on the list in terms of taking the familiar parable and applying it in a really deep, rich, and personal way. Um, and really, actually, a real honest way, too, to really kind of deal with the sort of um, elder sibling dynamics that are in our hearts that actually make us sort of fear and resent God uh, for the disappointments in our life. And every person... In, in a church, in a parish, every person ever uh, has to deal with those sort of disappointments and those questions, um, and then to know that they're welcomed home by God. So I think that's probably the book that I, that I would go with at this point in this minute of this day.
1: That's a great answer. Can't go wrong with that one. I, I like that. I wish I'd thought of that. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to say Marilyn Robinson's Gilead for at least two reasons. Um, one is if they're interested in knowing kind of the heart and formational journey of their pastor more, uh, going and reading that book is important because it was so pivotal kind of in my own biography and story of coming into ministry in general, but the kind of ministry, um, and the context I'm in in particular, um, And then relatedly, then the other reason is I feel like it's such a countercultural novel in terms of uh, celebrating, I think, all that ought to be celebrated about a life of commitment to the church. Not the big show, not big production, um, but just uh, kind of the quiet, unassuming nature of faithful commitment uh, to the church. And 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 to and and to the church in general, but to kind of your instantiation of that church. Um, so it it for me was um, it, it presented this other vision of uh, kind of the good life um, in pastoral ministry that was so different from kind of the the pomp and circumstance and big show culture that I kind of grew up in and came out of. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of a local parish minister here, uh, small church. It's important to me to be able to know all of my folks, to be able to be at the hospital, uh, to, 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 to be able to know their families. Um, and uh, that book awakened that desire in me and showed me how, how how rich kind of a quiet, unsung life like that could be. Um, but I think it's important for Christians in churches to be reminded uh, that, that the true substance uh, of our life together as church ought not to be uh, kind of measured by quantitative metrics, uh, but by um, kind of the, the growth in discipleship and growth in community that's happening within the church. And, and I think that book gives you kind of a fictional lens into to, to why something like that could be more desirable than uh, kind of the big show uh, that looks really great, um, you know, in an advertisement. Um, but but might be missing some of these hallmarks of just kind of true local connected church culture. Uh, and a nonfiction look in that would be Andy Root's book, Congregation in a Secular Age, uh, which you know is something I'd love for for everybody in in my church and in the church as a whole to read as well. Well, you
0: basically mentioned a, a prodigal son fiction narrative, right? I mean, Robinson's novel is essentially the prodigal son story told in multiple ways. The My favorite quote from the novel, love is like grace. It is not the merit of the object that matters. And that's kind of the hard book. So as a non-pastor, but if I was a pastor, I would give everybody Orthodoxy by Chesterton. <laughs> I, I like it even better than Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity, I feel like explains to people... How to be ecumenical? What can we find our common ground to be? You know, it gives us this almost explanation of why the creeds make sense, why there's this heart of what our faith is. But orthodoxy makes you feel like the faith is an adventure. That's what I love about orthodoxy. It takes all of the rationale that you know, mere Christianity does so well and instead shows you the great paradox, the great mystery, the great fun of the faith, you know, the ethics of Elfland as he writes, it's just, there's just so much there that makes your faith kind of be defamiliarized and then refamiliarized in the right way. I could, I could read Orthodoxy and teach it every single year. So.
1: No, that's a great answer. I mean, it, it, it does for, for, For someone like Lewis, talking about mere Christianity over against orthodoxy, who in a previous conversation you and I had had, you said one of the real great hallmarks of Lewis was his ability to kind of balance in one person, both the deeply rational and the uh, committedly imaginative, you know, and, and didn't see those as at odds, but as compliments. Mere Christianity is really him just sounding that rational side. Uh, whereas Chesterton, you know, hit, who he always will point to as, as one of one of the ones who, who kind of showed him the way, that is, that, that is a book that does speak to the kind of rational aspect of, of The Searcher, but mm-hmm. really ignites the imagination.
0: Yes. It's yes. a great and answer. It's so, it's so much fun. And then you have to read all of Chesterton's novels once you read that. And he wrote it as a non-Catholic, so it's a great Protestant source because it's also kind of bridging that divide Right. So he's on his journey to the Christian faith and he's on his journey to conversion to the Catholic Church, but he publishes that book before he becomes a Catholic. So it's one of those great works that you can say you you can recommend it to Protestants without them saying, like, Are you Catholic? Mm. <laughs> Which happens to me Which
2: time. no one asks you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I get to say, No, but I really love this book by this Catholic author before he became Catholic. Well, those are fantastic. Thanks for going through the pain and the trial of answering that question. And hopefully, maybe some of your congregants are actually listening and now they expect you to buy them a book. Gladly. They're looking forward to that conversation. Okay, well, stay tuned to another great conversation that we have planned for you after this. This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth by Beth Allison Barr. In the book, Barr shows that the biblical womanhood isn't biblical, but was born in a clearly definable historical moment, and she presents a better way forward for the contemporary church. Get 30% off and free shipping at bakerbookhouse.com.
2: This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are
3: grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu
2: admit.
0: Welcome to another episode of The Scandal of Reading. I'm really excited about this conversation because I have kind of an obsession right now with Dorothy L. Sayers. And thankfully, I'm not alone in the world. So Caitlin Chess and I discovered that we share a passion for Sayers. And so I invited her on today to talk about Dorothy Sayers' play, The Zeal of Thy House. So Caitlin, would you introduce yourself to our listeners?
3: Yeah, my name is Caitlin Chess. Um, I am a, an author and a speaker. I deal in questions of political engagement and faith and public life. Um, I'm also a doctoral student at Duke Divinity School, working on questions of biblical interpretation and political theology.
0: Yeah. Do you want to go ahead and plug your titles?
3: Yes. Yeah, so my <laughs> first book came out in 2020 with University Press called The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And my next book is coming out with Brazos Press um, it, just this August, 2023. And it is called, and I keep messing these words up, but I've got it, I think this time it is called The Ballot and the Bible how scripture has been used and abused in American politics, and where we go from here.
0: It's so fantastic. I love it. I'm not in the political sphere. I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually worked in DC for three months.
3: I didn't know that.
0: (laughs) I thought, well, when I was in college, I was trying to decide which direction of life I was going to go. And I wanted to change the world for Jesus in some way, you know, Kind of the same story everyone has. And so I I did Paramount Studios. I worked in L.A. for a little while. And then I worked in D.C. for a little while. And what I discovered is they were very similar places. Mm. Mm. They were all obsessed with one topic of conversation and one way of being. And it was just too much for me. And then when I turned to dead people um, (laughs) – and studying all these dead authors, I found, okay, I don't have to keep up with the latest Hollywood headline or news. I don't have to keep up with the latest political headline or news. Like, mm. I actually can just rest in these things that are old and they speak to today. And it was like finding myself at home. But I did, yeah. I did wrestle with that because I did have such an interest in what was going on right yeah. now, both yeah. in culture and in politics.
3: Yeah. No, I love yeah. that.
0: Yeah. So that, that used to be part of my world. And I think that, you know, we see with Dorsey Sayers that she too is kind of this Renaissance woman that was trying to yeah. find her place and how she was going to respond to the time that she was living in. Can you tell us a little bit about Sayers and then what drew you to her?
3: Yeah. So I first, probably like a lot of Christians, especially evangelicals, I first heard of, of Sayers in connection to C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. and the Inklings and was just excited. There was a woman- involved in that time. (laughs) Um, and I read this collection of her essays, uh, letters to a diminished church at the beginning Mm -hmm. of seminary. And then like multiple times throughout seminary convinced groups of people to come to my house to read things out loud. And I always read an essay from that um, book and I've probably read most of the essays in that book dozens of times. I just think they deserve to be read out loud. They're Mm -hmm. really beautifully written and she's so funny and, um, wise and then very recently I um, I took a class on uh, Wittgenstein this last semester, um, you know a late 19th early 20th century um, philosopher who really changed how a lot of people talk about language and in connection to him got really interested in these group of four women who kind of changed moral philosophy at Oxford um, in like early to mid 20th century. And um, especially Philippa Foote and Elizabeth Anscombe. And so I got really invested. I read a bunch of books about like women at Oxford in that yeah. period. And so Sayers kept coming up during that. And now I like have a little mental map of like the different generations of women at Oxford that I'm really interested in, like the possibilities for what they could do and the restrictions that were on them. And um, so got really excited about returning to Sayers as I read these other women and like just little notes about her kept kind of coming up. Yeah.
0: I didn't re- – okay, I didn't realize we had that in common, too, because I – so I read The Women Were Up to Something, yes. and then I read the Metaphysical Animals, That yes. <laughs> I was so obsessed. And now – because my current project right now is Women of the Early 20th Century, which is why mm. I'm obsessed with Dorothy Sayers. I'm looking yeah. at, like, the intellectuals in the Christian
3: church. Yeah. So that's... I'm also
0: looking at, like, Edith Stein and Dorothy yeah. Day. And,
3: oh, that's so yeah. fun. We need to have a whole other conversation about that, because I really, like – I mean, I I'm literally I'm I'm TAing for an ethics class right wow. now, and I'm so obsessed with these women that that while we're not talking about them at all, and I keep right. everything we talk about, I keep being like, you know what? No, Philippa Foot has something to say about this, and I really yeah. think we need to listen to them. So
0: that is so cool. Well, and I agree with you that the essays Sayers needs to be read aloud. You can actually hear her voice through her writing. She just has such a distinct – in the same way that Chesterton or Lewis, they had their own voices. They really had power over their essays. So does Sayers. Yeah. Right? You read her out loud and you start – you almost feel like you're becoming her because yes. you know, the words kind of control the way you say them.
3: Yes. The little right. asides and the kind of – like you can you can just feel what – you can almost feel like the the cadence of what and how it would be said out loud, and um, and every time I start reading them not out loud, I end up reading them out loud because it just feels yeah. like you no, know, this is like I can imagine this being presented to someone.
0: Yeah, and well, and and that's what you know most of what she was doing. I I told people last night, so I was reading at the small town brewery in my in my little town. It's about 15,000 people. And they do these weekly Thursday night gatherings where everybody comes together and they read something aloud. And usually it's poetry, mm. plays, things like that. So I decided to read Why Work by Dorothy Sayers. And no one in the room, I think there was one person that knew who she was. Wow. So nobody in the room knew who she was. They started, we had a 10 minute break and they started Googling like, who is this person? <laughs> Um but as I'm reading the essay, I mean they were just gasping like this is written in 1942. And so I gave them some background. I was like, Day- Sayers was more famous than CS Lewis. Yeah. She was yeah. this famous British mystery writer. Lewis says it was the first famous person that ever wrote him a letter. <laughs> and so she was traveling everywhere and being asked to speak everywhere. So why work? I mean people wanted to know what she had to say about vocation, especially in the midst of a war where you have fascist countries and their own ideas of what work is. She had her own Christian understanding of what work was right in this essay. Do you mind kind of unpacking? It always sounds weird to put a Christian label on something, Mm. but in why work, she does say that she, she talks about, and this is probably before we started putting Christian labels on everything, but she does say that there's a Christian understanding of work that I think pertains to the zeal by house today.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, she has a whole description in that essay that really is rooted in what kind of creatures are humans, like what is mm-hmm. it for us to flourish well. Um, and as we'll get to in, in the Zeal of Thy House, like a sense that there's something has changed in our relationship to work, um, in a fallen and broken world. And yet mm-hmm. the intention for humans was to do work that they loved, and it didn't need to be Christian work. I really wish I mm-hmm. had read that essay. You know, when I was in college and like decided I was going to go to seminary and I very like I had a real sense of like I am doing the godlier thing. I was Mm going to go to law Mm -hmm. school and that's this like, you know, dirty, earthly profession. And now I'm going to do the holy thing. And she would have nothing like she would have none of that if I had Mm -hmm. said that Um, (laughs) just a strong sense that that doing work well based on what the thing itself is, like Mm -hmm. using the standards of the work itself is is to be Christian not only because it's a Christian doing it but because it's a Christian understanding of the goodness of creation what it means to be a human and do work well mm-hmm. um and she even has a, a section in that essay where she's talking about like you know people who would put on some kind of production and their their standard for the people doing all of the different elements of it would just mm-hmm. be piety and they would produce this really terrible thing and if that felt like, <laughs> You could pull that out and talk about a lot of Christian media today, and be like, if your standard is just we all believe the right things and and are good people, and that means we'll make a good thing. Not, am I actually a good videographer? Am I a good actor? Am I a good um, that that all, not only produces bad products like that, mm-hmm. that's but that's a bad witness to the God that created beautiful yes. things and wants us to create beautiful things.
0: Yes, absolutely. It was so good last night when I shared that part because people started breaking out in their own stories. <laughs> One of the women says, she said, I tried to hire a, uh, someone to repair my roof from the Christian businessman association. And then my roof leaked. Oh gosh. And she's like, what a horrible, she, it's exactly yeah. like, what a horrible witness that you use the word Christian to try to get business from other Christians, but you're not actually good at what you do. And you try to get away with it because at least I'm a pious worker. Like in Sayers' word, at least I, I show up and I'm I'm not drunk and I'm sober and mm-hmm. at least I behave well. And, yeah. you know, the the piety is supposed to override the fact that you're not good at your job.
3: Yeah. And right. just like a misunderstanding of – yeah, of, of what it is to be a human is not just kind of moral rectitude or like it's not mm-hmm. just I kind of do the right things and believe the right things. But there is a goodness that isn't just kind of following a set of rules or being moral. There's a goodness that is – And even I think she says in that essay, it's something about, you know, people should do the kind of work that they were meant to do. Like it's better for you to do the thing you are best fitted for than for you to do something. And I think about that a lot in terms of I was in seminary for five years. I knew a lot of people who they were like slowly learning that I don't think they were actually fitted for Mm -hmm. ministry. Mm -hmm. They were fitted really well for some other vocation, but because of how we had kind of even for Protestants, had even kind of had this this these sense of levels of of piety, were doing something else and thought even if this isn't what I'm best fitted for, this is still the right thing. And it's like, no, there, that should be a pretty significant concern for you of like, yeah. how has God gifted me and how do I use that best? And is that actually mm-hmm. that that is something really deeply Christian to think that you are both made for work and made for certain mm-hmm. kinds of work and that you should discern what that is and do it faithfully.
0: That's so good. And I was at the brewery last night and that's where we hosted this reading and she has the whole section on brews because she says, you know, she starts first with a carpenter and saying like a carpenter's best way of being godly is to make a good table, not to be a morally pious, upstanding person who makes horrible tables. And (laughs) then she goes into the idea of brewery and she's like, we all know what that beer tastes like, where you're thinking about product, where you're thinking about efficiency, where you're thinking about these worldly ways of being you know, versus the person who actually just follows the Lord by submitting himself to the work, by serving the beer, by, by making it almost like an art, everything in a sense becomes an art because we're created by a creative creator. Yeah, yeah. And then in turn, everything needs to be thought of in terms, not of money-making and not in terms of moral piety, but in terms of how are we imitating God and this thing that we're making. Yeah. Um, which is to me as someone who's a creative artist and I, I did a creative writing degree that was just so uplifting, you know, that I could serve the work and that would be the most godly thing I could do.
1: Um,
0: and I think she, that's what she's tackling in, in this play is because she's dealing with an artist. She's dealing with an architect and he's building a church. So it kind of brings in both layers. It's, he's supposed to be doing something godly, but he's also, his main role is not to be a priest. It's to be an architect. Mm-hmm. Do you mind just kind of laying out the story? It's a real easy read. I don't think yeah. people would have. To, I mean, it's less than a hundred pages. Yep. Um, but just kind of laying out the story for us of of this architect.
3: Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, I'd read this once before. I didn't know until I was rereading it for this that that Sayers was basing it off of this historical account of the rebuilding mm-hmm. of of the Canterbury Cathedral choir in at this fire in eleven seventy four. But mm-hmm. the discri- the play is is this story about you know the monks in this chapter finding the right architect for it you get a little sense in the beginning of kind of the different there are three architects that they're thinking about and what's important to each of them and how they communicate mm-hmm. um, you see a few years into the building how it's going and you know really positive responses from people but you also get a sense that there might be some financial dishonesty happening mm-hmm. you're introduced to um, the lady ursula who's uh, flirting a little bit with, with the architect, William, and you get a sense that that could go in a bad direction. <laughs> um, and then a few years into the, into the building more, um, the real kind of like um, drama of it when he is, you can see both that there's a affair happening between the two of them. It's causing some dissension among mm. the, the other builders um, and the monks are unhappy and trying to figure out what to do about it. And he's preparing this rope to, to hoist him up, um, high up mm-hmm. to do something. And both a monk and, or I think a couple of monks are, are watching to see if the rope is good before they do this, to see if it'll hold him, mm-hmm. distracted both by his flirtatiousness with Lady Ursula. Um, and I, I think it's interesting. There's a monk that's, that's um, distracted by the flirtation. And then there's a monk who's so trying to not be distracted by the flirtation that he averts mm-hmm. his eyes and prays a bunch of prayers. But I, both of them don't watch the rope well. William right. is hoisted up. Um, the rope breaks. Oh, there's a little boy in the crowd who s- says he sees an angel cutting the rope with a sword. Mm-hmm. But clearly, really dramatically, the fall from all of the kind of prideful William who had such a great sense of his work and the importance mm-hmm. of it. And and really, as we'll talk about, had a real sense of it really doesn't matter if I'm a, a pious person. What matters is that I make mm-hmm. this great you know, work for God. He falls and then has, you know, we see later his... Kind of attempt to still lead this project with his mm-hmm. his body very broken, um, and then finally this really um, intense you know confrontation with these angels who have been watching all of the events, both calling him to repentance and him initially repenting of lots of other sins, mm-hmm. um, but really taking you know a real kind of theological dialogue between them before he can get to the sense of saying no, ultimately my sin was pride. He really didn't want mm-hmm. to kind of get there or admit that. And gets to that place at the end of being able to really repent for, for the pride that he had in believing he could build this this great thing. He has some other moments earlier where he basically says, like, actually, it's God that needs me to build this right. cathedral. So in some sense, I'm more important. Um, and that comes back to bite him.
0: <laughs> yeah. And and I love that she almost makes a parallel. It reminds me a lot of what Shakespeare does in The Tempest, where you have the magician kind of stands for the playwright. right? And mm. says everything that Shakespeare thinks about why you write plays and what the audience's role is and, and what the, the play is actually doing. And I feel like Sayers is doing that same thing with this architect, right? The architect, yeah. in a sense, represents her idea of an artist and what an artist should be. But she problematizes the things that she says and why work because this artist is not pious. So she, it's almost like she's challenging her own argument mm-hmm. about how much piety do you need to do the work well.
3: Yeah, yeah. And it, it is kind of like I think you feel conflicted about it the whole time because mm-hmm. you'll hear these descriptions or even kind of it, – it's not just William who does this. Um, I forget if it's the prior or another monk who multiple times – kind of comes in to be the voice of no really what is important is this work that he's doing mm-hmm. um and to make i think a really as someone who's studying christian ethics like a really important point about the judgment of god versus human judgment and kind of well, yeah. maybe this isn't our time to judge him um but you know don't um don't forget that god will ultimately will ultimately judge him for his sin so there mm-hmm. is like tension between this sense that it is causing problems and there's even the monk Mm -hmm. who kind of confronts him about the problems it's causing, even in the like context of the work, like your builders are distracted because they're gossiping about your affair and what's happening with the money. And, um, so there's that, but then you also do get this sense that maybe it's okay anyway. I mean, maybe really it is ultimately about the work that he does. And I think it's especially interesting that it is in the context of, of a cathedral which I think a lot of Protestants especially, our sense Mm. of those great buildings in Europe is conflicted of like beautiful, incredible places. I was just in Italy this last summer and saw Mm -hmm. all of these beautiful cathedrals and felt that uh, you don't have to be Protestant. You can still be, you could be Catholic and also be conflicted Mm -hmm. about the history of of the building Mm -hmm. of these things, whether it is indulgences and kind of, um, you know, preying on people's fears of their eternal Mm -hmm. soul. Or even Mm -hmm. if it's just the fact that some of these were made as great monuments to God and some of them were made because a local leader wanted to gain some political power and so he Mm -hmm. can, you know, it's just, it's like so much more complicated than that. But it is also still a beautiful thing that does Mm -hmm. really inspire awe and worship of God. And it comes from this complicated place. And so. Yes.
0: Yes. And I think that's what you get in the play is you get this behind the scenes that God is at work even with all of the human failings that are happening on the stage. You know, she doesn't, Sayers doesn't depict these angels as just these little cherubims that are watching over you, making sure you do everything that you want to do. Yes. Right. Which is like, (laughs) I think our false vision of angels, like protect my car on the road trip um, versus like do the will of God on my road trip, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just a different mentality. And instead she has these ginormous six foot men with 11 foot wings and Providence looks imposing in the way that she tries to stage it, yeah. that Providence is so much bigger than William of Sins and the prior and the little problems that are going on in the Abbey. Like, the, the Providence is still writing the story. Mm-hmm. You know, even through these characters, even though there's so much agency, there's no there's no angelic control, but definitely yeah. a lot of angelic interplay.
3: Yeah, even the very, very beginning when the angels are talking about why the choir needs to be rebuilt, it's like, well, there was this man who didn't clean his chimney and a little spark, <laughs> but, but the angel carried the spark over to the church, and it was in some sense a judgment for the archbishop being killed. Like, you don't really get that full story in the play, but you do have mm-hmm. like – the background of – and it comes up a few times later where someone some, one of the, like, townspeople says something about – it's the king must be a very bad man for having the archbishop killed. Right. Like, so you have this, like, there's this background story of, like, something bad happened. And on one sense, they even say, like, I the man who didn't clean his chimney, whose spark mm-hmm. kind of got carried by the angel over to the choir and set it on fire, the angels say, he wasn't necessary. I could have mm-hmm. used a lightning bolt to do it. Um, in some sense, this is not just about his sin. There's consequences mm-hmm. for his sin. This is a kind of judgment. Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately, like, God's will will be done and it right. can – be and actually something good could come out of this rebuilding. Some beautiful thing could be created even if – that doesn't get the guy off the hook. The guy who didn't clean his mm-hmm. chimney, still that was still <laughs> bad. We're still kind of – there will be judgment for him. <laughs> Even if God brings something good out of it, um, which is also true for William, right? Like something good can come out of it, but he doesn't get out of of being judged for his sins either.
0: Well, and that, you know, you get to see that behind the scenes with William where I don't remember all the angels' names. I remember Raphael Mm -hmm. and and Gabriel, Michael, the ones that we know, but they've mentioned some other angels and they're trying to say whether or not uh, William has done anything good. Yeah. Remember this part? And uh, Raphael says, you know, he hasn't done anything good as far as prayer, but- Raphael counts his building of the building as prayer, which to me is really complicated and really beautiful. I'm just going to read that passage. So this is just Raphael talking, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this passage. So Raphael says, behold, and he's talking about William of Sins. Behold, he prayeth, not with the lips alone, but with the hand and with the cunning brain. Men worship the eternal architect, So when the mouth is dumb, the work shall speak and save the workman. To labor is to pray.
3: Yeah. (laughs) There's so much there. Yes. Yeah. And it is. I My first thought hearing this too is is outside of the context of the story. There's so much of this that's Mm -hmm. interesting in the context of the story. But outside of it, thinking about Sayre's other writing on work too, there is such a sense in which this – not only dignifies work that is not explicitly ministry, but also mm-hmm. dignifies people who express their humanity in different ways. Like we – you and I in academic contexts put place a very mm-hmm. high premium on people who can read a lot of books and sound really smart when they talk about books. And I know a lot of people who because of age or disability or, you know, young or old or um, – have very limited ability to engage in that way of praising God, if it's Mm -hmm. through speech or through preaching or through um, counseling people or through reading lots of books, um, but who do work in the world in a, in a way that is bringing glory to God, even if Mm -hmm. they cannot use their lips to pray, you know, there's a sense in which that's, it's incredibly dignifying of just as Sarah said in the other work, whatever work is fit for you is this Mm -hmm. act of worship, to God. You were given, you know, some capacity to do something and you doing that faithfully is an act of work for God. In the context of the story, it's so complicated because you go, I don't know, maybe he should pray. Like he should, <laughs> he, should pray. he can talk, like he should pray and maybe he should repent of some of these things, you know, but.
0: <laughs> well, and I'm glad that she doesn't leave it as an easy answer. I mean, you don't yeah. have just a pious person making pious art, he is building something for God and he is doing it well, Yeah, but his pride is going to get him in trouble. Like it is going to come to a place where he has to consider his work prayer itself. Yeah. And he doesn't see it that way. I think that's the problem. He sees it as uh praise of himself and yes. not in praise of God or in imitation of God. And even the, the symbolism of, you know, he's building that arch and I think the prior is the one who mentions um, kind of the, symbolism behind the arch right every stone is leaning on one another we all need Mm. each other but then it is william of Sens who wants to put in the keystone like there's this pride that he doesn't recognize and then when he falls that's when he starts seeing oh my work was supposed to be prayer i am i have been given this as a gift i should be giving it back god doesn't need me but also can use me if i did this well and rightly right yeah. Um, and I think that comes out in that final dialogue with Michael. And if you're willing to play yeah. the part <laughs> because to me, that is the final, that's like the climactic scene. Yeah. This is a spoiler alert, but it's a 1937 play. So yeah. <laughs> You've had this <time>. <laughs> <like>, no, <laughs> you should really have already read this. <laughs> and if you haven't, you can look forward to this climactic moment because yeah. it's awesome. Um, so yeah, if we want to just play out some of these moment. So Michael has revealed himself to William. William at this point is completely paralyzed and William is confessing for the first time in his life, but he doesn't confess his pride and he doesn't even see it. Yeah. And um so this is for me it's like on 121. Do you have the same version? That I think you, so. or do you, yep. Okay, yeah. So for me it's on 121 and um do you want to play Michael or William?
3: I feel like I should play William because if I say Michael, then I'm denying the point of this book by wanting to be be the angel and not the (laughs) sinner.
0: Oh, that's so funny. I didn't mean to do a personality (laughs) test. Um, (laughs) That's so fantastic. Okay. Well, if you don't mind, William, starting with just answer me, Angel. So this is his big question and then we'll kind Mm. of go through and it's rather lengthy, but it's totally worth it. Um, and I will, I will summarize a little bit of Michael's last speech, but I think people can bear with us the next five minutes because it's totally worth it. Okay.
3: Answer me, angel. What have I ever done or left undone that I may not repent nor God forgive?
0: There where thy treasure is, thy heart is also sin is of the heart.
3: But all my heart was in my work. Even so. What in my work? The sin was in my work. Thou liest thou Though thou speak with God's own voice, thou liest. In my work, that cannot be. I grant the work not perfect. No man's work is perfect. But what hand and brain could do, such as God made them, that I did. Doth God demand the impossible? Then blame God, not me. That Mm. I am man, not God. He hath broken me, hath sought to snatch the work out of my hand. Wherefore? Oh, now, now I begin to see. This was well said. He is a jealous God. The work was not ill done. T'was done too well. He will not have men creep so near his throne to steal applause from him. Is this my fault? Why, this needs no repentance and shall have none. Let him destroy me, since he has the power to slay the thing he envies. But while I have breath, my work is mine. He shall not take it from me.
0: No, thou shalt lay it down of thine own will.
3: Never. Let him heap on more torments yet.
0: He can heave none on thee he hath not borne.
3: Let him strike helpless hands as well as feet.
0: Whose hands and feet were helpless stricken through.
3: Scourge me and smite me and make blind mine eyes.
0: As he was blindfolded and scourged and smitten.
3: Dry up my voice in my throat and make me dumb.
0: As he was dumb and opened not his mouth.
3: Cramp me with pains.
0: As he was cramped with pains, racked limb from limb upon the stubborn cross.
3: Parch me with fever.
0: He that cried, I thirst.
3: Ring out my blood and sweat.
0: Whose sweat like blood watered the garden in Gethsemane.
3: For all that he can do, I will not yield, nor leave to other men that which is mine. To botch, to alter, turn to something else, not mine.
0: Thou wilt not, yet God bore this to. The last, the bitterest, the worst humiliation, bowing his neck under the galling yoke, frustrate defeated, half his life unlived. Nothing achieved.
3: Could God being God do this? Christ
0: being man did this.
3: Whoa. Is that so good? It really, that, yeah. All of that back and forth where he's just like, no, do everything to me. And Michael's like, what? He's born in, already- in his body. It's
0: already, oh, it's already been done. Ah, and that is so conflicting yeah. because the pride is what leads to the fall, but like the willingness to be humiliated, to be humbled, even though you yourself are the one who created everything. Yeah. It's just like oh I love reading that passage yeah. so much. Yes. yes. Yeah. And it just it, it, it i I I'm sorry, I'm getting I'm getting speechless. You go. It's so <laughs> good. Yeah,
3: no, I mean and and that being the mechanism for how he recognizes his pride is so striking that it's it's not just him kind of being worn down by argument or even them saying, OK, finally, we're going to tell you it's pride let, let or even being like, you know, a, la a Christmas Carol, like drug along and shown <laughs> what he's done. You know, it's not that it's I am I am so convinced that this is mine and it is good work and I have done this amazing mm-hmm. thing and you can do all of these bad things to me and I will not repent of it and then being confronted like line by line with the pain that Christ bore in his body the humility yeah. that he bore for you that's the thing that finally gets him to see the truth of it i mean that that's just like the whole play is is profoundly christian in many ways but that's just a mm-hmm. that is that's not you couldn't come up with that if you didn't really understand the gospel right
0: <laughs> right right no and 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 even that moment Where he has been Lucifer this whole time and he's confessing everything, but he's not willing to confess, I tried to replace you. It was I that I was jealous of you. Do whatever you like to me because I still stand where you can't judge me. And then to hear he's already taken the judgment. Yeah. Like you saying that is another nail in his flesh and he's willing to take it again so that you can see it. Oh, it's just... It's amazing. It's so moving to me. I can't imagine seeing it on stage.
3: Yes. So. Yes.
0: <laughs> it would be phenomenal. Well, as we close up the play, let me just um, – Michael has the last word, thankfully. I'm going to read his little prayer, and um, and then maybe we can just tell people what where else they can read more of Sayers mm-hmm. and, and hear um, hear more about the work that she did and, and why we should continue reading it. So at the very end, Michael just says – Praise him that he hath made man in his own image, a maker and craftsman like himself, a little mirror of his triune majesty. And then, then, of course, Michael talks about, and so because you are in his image, this is how you should live. You should serve the work and serve the creator. And it's just, it's a really, I mean, it's, it sounds preachy when I'm summarizing it, but it's so poetic. You don't notice how didactic it, it could be to take apart and paraphrase um, because it's just a, it's a lovely ending a reminder of, of something that's so true. It's beautiful.
3: Yeah. And just the, I, I keep thinking about, um, and forgive me that I don't remember the name of this book. There's this massive novel about um, building a cathedral in this period. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to look it up and remember what it's called. It's, it's like historical fiction. It's not. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah.
0: But yes. um,
3: yeah. Yep. Whatever that book is <laughs> called. Yes. I, I read it while I was like going yeah. around Italy this summer, looking at all these beautiful cathedrals, not the same exact like um, area of the world, but similar kind of themes. And the the person, the architect of the cathedral that's at the center of this book, the moment when he kind of convince, convinces the, the priest to let him mm-hmm. be the architect when he doesn't have experience doing this. And his little speech that he gives is so beautiful. And his speech essentially comes down to, I would love this. Like I mm. – I, this is the work that I was made for and I would enjoy it. Mm. Like it would be right for me. And that's so different than this description here of William who, who does love what he does in a certain sense, but it is protective of it and it is about his own glory, as you said, and mm-hmm. it's competitive and he's willing to criticize other people or it really is – there is a fine line between I love this and mm. I love – the glory that this gives me, but it's an right. important line, and and it's just interesting that 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 is is so well dealt with here. Like the mm-hmm. the temptation that could move you from you don't get that explicitly, but I can just imagine that doesn't start with just loving glory. That starts with loving yeah. being an architect and loving building something beautiful, and you might not notice one day when it when it kind of moves into love of your own glory mm-hmm. but there's a big difference in how you describe your love and what you actually do um and I just imagine like this ending of it the way that he is is repenting the way that his life is changing it is it is more of a sense of what does a good life look like for me now with mm-hmm. the conditions that I am mm-hmm. under it's not just this, sense of what I had to do before this being right. this great architect made me valuable and good but actually what does it mean now for me to to deal with the life that I have now with my body the way that it is and mm-hmm. have that be honoring to God
0: oh that's so good I, I mean as you said like what are you fitted for yeah because what he's fitted for at the end imitating his creator is going to look different than it did earlier and especially if he's no longer fitted for this work to keep yeah. trying to control it is idolatry. Yes, and instead he yeah. has to let that go and find out what else he's fitted for. I think that's also just a good, the way you've summarized it, it's a good lesson for us in identity, you know, just yeah. not placing our identity in these false things um, or our zeal. I mean, that's where the title comes from,
2: mm-hmm. right? Uh, Thomas
0: Aquinas says to, there's only one thing you should be zealous for without moderation. And that's mm-hmm. the love of mm-hmm. God, Yeah. but everything else should be zealous with moderation.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what are you going to read next? Are you reading any Sayers? You're probably overwhelmed with a longer reading list. No,
3: I'm actually, I'm in the middle right now. It's taken me too long to read it, but I'm reading Gaudy Night right now. And I haven't, yes, yes. I, (sighs) yes, I haven't read it before. I, um, have not read a lot of her mysteries and I'm really Mm. partially because as we said earlier, I'm like really interested in like Oxford in this period of the 20th century. And so Gaudy Night especially is like, set in oxford and you know there's just like elements of it that as i've kind of gotten into the historical descriptions Mm -hmm. of what was happening there it's been fun to read her her description of it in this mystery which is like i didn't i didn't have a sense like that was not my introduction to her as you as you said of like incredibly famous author for these kinds of stories and it's so Mm -hmm. so good and so fun
0: Okay, Caitlin, we should totally lead a trip to Oxford studying the women of Oxford.
3: I would love that. So I, li- I have a friend here who got, she read a ton of Iris Murdoch this semester for a literature oh, yeah. class. And the two of us have been like, I just, I want as like women academic friends yes. to go study a bunch of women who were academic mm-hmm. friends and in the context they were in. We should totally yep. do that. Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm
0: on board. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Well, with, with that, I'm going to go ahead and say thank you. Yeah. This was awesome. We'll have to do it again sometime the next time we can gush about somebody else but this was really lovely.
3: Thanks so much.